Christ died once. He only needed one sacrifice. It was once for all, complete and full. To say that he needs to be sacrificed again and again and again to atone for sin is to blaspheme his perfect work. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Are believers to participate in communion once a month or once a week? Should they use grape juice and crackers or wine and bread? Hello there, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part three of a series titled The Lord's Table. The Bible records that Jesus Christ gave His church two ceremonies that He commanded believers to participate in. The first of those two ceremonies occurs only once in the life of a believer, baptism. It's an initiatory rite. It is to occur shortly after a person's conversion. The other is the Lord's table, and it is a ceremony that is to be repeated often in the life of the believer. But how often? and under what circumstances? Let's find out with Tom now on The Word Unleashed. We've been studying 1 Corinthians 11, and I invite you to turn there with me again this morning. 1 Corinthians 11 is filling out our understanding of this wonderful and sacred ceremony. We began to look at it two weeks ago, and today I want us to complete our study together. Let me read it for you again. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If we were to summarize that passage of Scripture, we could say that Paul wants us to understand that the Lord's table is a crucial part of the corporate worship of the church because our Lord himself commanded it. And every individual Christian must understand how it's to be celebrated, what it means, and even how to rightly prepare to take it. Now, the last time we studied this passage together, we 
address the first two issues that Paul addresses here. We looked in verses 17 to 22 at the corruption of the Lord's table. The corruption, what had happened in Corinth to corrupt the simple ceremony. And I won't rehearse all of that again. I encourage you, if you weren't here, to go back and sort of catch up because I'm going to build on what I taught a couple of weeks ago this morning. But just to remind you, the church worshipped on Sunday as we do today, but it was a work day for people in the Roman Empire. So they met before sunrise briefly, and then they met after the work day was done. And the wealthy would gather at their homes, because that's typically where the services were held in the larger homes, and they would get there first, they would have a wonderful meal to eat, and then the workers and slaves would arrive later, have really no place to eat and really nothing to eat, so that some had nothing, Paul says, and others were so satiated that they were actually becoming drunk. They were sinning against other brothers and sisters at the Lord's table. At the end of that love feast, they would take the Lord's table. And so it became something other than the Lord's table, Paul says. You think it's the Lord's Supper, but it's not. That was the corruption. We looked secondly last time at the institution of the Lord's table. That is, when and how our Lord instituted this ceremony for us to celebrate. Today we come to the third issue that Paul addresses in regard to this matter of the Lord's table, it is the implications in the Lord's table. The implications that are wrapped up in this ceremony. Both of the ordinances that Christ gave his church, baptism and the Lord's table, theologians call signs. When we say that they are signs, we mean they are visible markers that point to something else. This morning when you came on the church property, whether you came through the cul-de-sac or you came off of the the road off of 114, you probably saw the church sign. That sign is not Countryside Bible Church. That sign is merely a visible marker that points to the reality that is the church. You are the church, not the building in which we meet. We, together, are Countryside Bible Church, and the signs are visible markers pointing to that spiritual reality. This is where the church meets. In the same way, the Lord's table is a visible sign that points to several great spiritual realities. Before we look at the spiritual realities, let's make sure we understand the the visible signs themselves, the markers, if you will, or the elements that we should use Notice in the passage I read for you, Paul simply calls the two signs here, bread and the cup. Bread and the cup. The bread was what our Lord used as part of the Passover celebration on that night that he was betrayed. In that celebration, the Jewish people did and still do use unleavened bread. They were commanded to use bread without yeast or unleavened bread because they had to leave Egypt in a hurry. They didn't have time to mix yeast into the bread and let let it rise and go through the whole process. They needed to cook it fast and get out of Egypt. And so they eat unleavened bread as a reminder of that speedy exit out of Egypt. But none of the four New Testament passages that command us to take this ordinance mention anything about the kind of bread we are to use. They simply say bread. 
doesn't say if it's to be leavened or unleavened, yeast or not yeast. We use unleavened bread, and a little bit we'll take of these little wafers together. We use bread that's unleavened without yeast because we believe it best represents the reality that Christ's humanity was untainted by sin. And that's fine. It's okay to do that. But understand that unleavened bread is not biblically required. It simply says bread. And it does in all four cases that it occurs. The other sign or visible element that's a part of this is simply called the cup. The cup. As we learned last time, this cup was the third of four ceremonial cups of wine that were, that were drunk during the Passover celebration. It was the cup of redemption. It was the cup to remind them that God redeemed them out of Egypt. And it became the cup to remind us that Jesus became our redemption. We know that that Passover cup, the disciples and Jesus used on that night of his betrayal and the night he instituted this, was as the rabbis prescribed, wine mixed with water. But again, in the four passages that record the institution of the Lord's Supper, not one of them mentions the use of wine specifically. We know that historically, but the text itself doesn't tell us that. It simply refers to the cup. Now, what do we discern from this? That it's simply bread and the cup. Theologians conclude, and I think rightfully, that it's not crucial that the elements we use be exactly what the elements were on the night our Lord instituted it. In fact, it appears throughout early church history that the disciples used whatever bread was available for that particular meal. They used the beverage, which typically was in that culture, wine or wine mixed with water. But the exact nature of the elements is not the issue. That brings us then to the most important question. What do these signs, bread and the cup, mean? What do these signs signify? What are the spiritual realities to which these visible markers point? Well, before we look at what they do point to, what it does mean, I want to first make sure we, we understand what it does not mean. Because there's a lot of confusion about the Lord's table in professing Christianity. And there are two specific things I want you to understand it does not mean that are very commonly held to in Christendom. The first thing it does not mean is that we are eating and drinking the physical body and blood of Jesus Christ. It does not mean that we are eating and drinking the physical body and blood of Christ. This is taught by the Roman Catholic Church. Official Roman Catholic doctrine states that the bread and wine actually become the literal physical body and blood of Christ when the priest pronounces, this is my body. The bread and wine, their doctrine teaches, still have the external physical properties of bread and wine. They look like bread and wine, they taste like bread and wine, they smell like bread and wine, but they are no longer bread and wine. They have, in the mass, become something else. By the way, just FYI, the word mass actually comes from the Latin word missa, which means dismissal. It's part of the phrase that the priest says at the end of the ceremony in Latin, 
He says, go, it is the dismissal, and the word mass comes from that word dismissal. But here's what the Council of Trent said happens in the mass. This is Council of Trent 1551. By the way, this doctrine was reaffirmed by Vatican II, so this is still the official doctrine of the church. Here's what it writes, quote, it has always been a firm belief in the church of God. It's not exactly true. It actually began in about 600 AD. And this holy council now declares it anew that by the consecration of the bread and wine, a change is brought about of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church properly and appropriately calls transubstantiation, end quote. That is the doctrine of the Catholic Church. The bread and wine become the literal blood and body of Jesus Christ. They base this view on two biblical arguments. The first argument is here in our text when Jesus says, this is my body. We'll look at that phrase in just a moment. But let me go to the second proof they use, which is a passage in John 6. Turn there with me. John chapter 6. I want you to see this because it's a, it's a potentially confusing passage, but I think it'll become very clear to you when you see it in its context. John 6, verse 51. Jesus is here speaking to unbelieving Jews. He says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews begin to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, Roman Catholic doctrine argues that that passage I just read to you is about the Lord's table. That cannot be so for a couple of reasons. First of all, because it destroys the context. Jesus is here not talking to his disciples, but to unbelieving Jews. That would mean Jesus is talking to unbelievers about an ordinance that he has not yet even commanded his followers to observe. Whatever Jesus is talking about in this passage, whenever a person eats his flesh in this sense and drinks his blood in this sense, look at verse 54. He has eternal life. Whatever this means, when you do it, you have eternal life and Christ will raise you up on the last day. Even Roman Catholic theology wouldn't say that taking the Lord's table accomplishes that in and of itself. So what is Christ talking about in this passage? Look at verse 63. He explains, it is the spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing. The, watch this. The words I have spoken to you are spiritual words, and they are life-giving words. The words I'm telling you aren't physical. I'm not telling you, Jesus says, to literally eat my body, literally drink my blood. I'm talking to you in a spiritual sense. 
And if you look back in the passage, you see that's true. Look back at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Do you see that here eating Jesus, if you will, and drinking Jesus is coming to him and believing in him? Verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So what's going on in this passage then, in these unusual words, Christ is extending an invitation of the gospel to unbelieving people. He's saying, believe in me. Find me the person who slakes your thirst. Find me the person who satisfies your hunger. They're spiritual words. He's not saying to physically eat him and drink him. He's not saying that bread and wine are going to turn into his body and blood, even though this is the passage that is used to teach that. By the way, you know I, I appreciate and respect Martin Luther, the great reformer, and he got the gospel right. He got this wrong. Martin Luther rejected the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Mass, but he also thought, this is my body, that phrase had to mean something literal. So his response was, yes, in the Lord's table, we do literally take of the Lord's body and blood, but it's not that it changes. Instead, his body and blood are in and under and around the real elements. You say, what does that mean? I don't know. But here's the best illustration of it that Lutheran, Lutheran doctrine can give. It's the relationship of, a water, of water and a sponge. Water and the sponge are not identical. But the water is in and around and through mixed with the sponge. They would say that's how it is with the bread and wine. The, Jesus' literal body and blood are sort of in and under and present in the bread and wine. That Lutheran view is not called transubstantiation, it's called consubstantiation. But folks, the Lord's table is not eating and drinking Jesus' actual body and blood, whether it's taught by the Catholic Church as transubstantiation or by the Lutheran Church as consubstantiation. And we'll see that even more in a moment. Let me give you one other thing the Lord's table does not mean and is not. This is so important. It is not a repetition of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This is also what Roman Catholic doctrine of the Mass teaches, and this is the most offensive of all. Those of you who have a Catholic background, in fact, just out of curiosity, how many of you were saved out of a Catholic background? Let me see your hands, a number of you. Those of you who have a Catholic background, you know that Roman Catholic doctrine of the Mass has at its heart this idea of a repeated sacrifice of Christ. Listen to Roman Catholic theologian Ludwig Ott. The Holy Mass is a true and proper sacrifice. The purpose of the sacrifice is the same as in the sacrifice of the cross. As a propitiatory sacrifice, it affects the remission of sins and the punishment for sins. 
So every time Catholic doctrine teaches, every time the Mass is celebrated, it is a repeated sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Folks, that is a blasphemy against the work of our Lord. It is a once-for-all completed work. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. He couldn't make it any more clear. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. Verse 25, now watch this. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 28, Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait him. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. I read it this morning. Every priest stands daily. This is before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. Those can never take away sins. But Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. What a priest could never do, he sat down, symbolizing his work was completed. Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. Listen, folks, Christ died once. He only needed one sacrifice. It was once for all, complete and full. To say that he needs to be sacrificed again and again and again to atone for sin is to blaspheme his perfect work. The true significance of the Lord's Supper looks back to a past historical event once for all, not to some ongoing spiritual sacrifice. So, the Lord's table then is not eating and drinking the literal body and blood of Christ, and it is not a constant repetition of the sacrifice of Christ. Now that we know what it's not, let's consider what it really means. What the Lord table, Lord's table signifies. What are the spiritual realities that the bread and the cup point to? Well, there are several of them, but let me just give you briefly touch on a couple of them so we can get to the most essential. First of all, the Lord's Supper is a confession of our faith. It is a confession of our faith. If you were in Egypt and you were told that God would pass through in the death angel, he would pass through and kill the firstborn of every house, how did you confess your faith in God's word? How would you have done that? Well, you would have killed the lamb. You would have applied its blood to the doorpost. You would have ate the Passover meal. You were saying by doing those things, I believe that our God is a savior, a rescuer, and he will save me and my family. When you and I take of the Lord's table, it is a confession of our faith in Jesus Christ. It is in essence saying this, by taking of this bread and the cup, which represents Christ's death, I am picturing the fact that I have personally received the spiritual benefits of his death. 
I am confessing that my faith is in him and in him alone. There's a second spiritual reality. It is a means of spiritual nourishment. The reformers used to call it a means of grace. We never earn grace, but God determined there are means through which he will distribute or dispense that grace to us. This is to those who have already experienced his saving grace in the gospel. Now that we are Christians, now that we are followers of Christ, activities such as gathering for worship, reading the scripture, prayer, and the Lord's table become a means of the dispensing of that grace in our lives. It gives us spiritual nourishment as we reflect on our Lord and what he's accomplished for us. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, The Lord's Table. Tom will have part four for us on our next program, and we do hope you'll join us then. Does the Bible speak about the government and structure of the church? In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it is critical to recapture what the Bible teaches about the structure of the church. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.